This is Tetra Podcast with me, John Conway, and uh, Darren Nash. All right, let's start this Tetra Podcast then. Okay. Shall we? Yeah, yeah, sure. I've got no idea what we're going to talk about, but yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Birds. Birds. <laughs> yeah, bird right, behavior. Okay. So we're going to talk okay. about your, um, your watching birds. My watching birds? Yeah. And watching, um, watching the magpies. Yeah, yeah. 265 photographs and how many of them were any good? God, they're impossible. They're it's so annoying, so frustrating trying to get good photographs of birds that are nesting about five meters away from the front window of my house. They just see. I think this this isn't a. They they know that they they need to hang around for the shortest possible time. So any visit and leaving from the nest is done in literally fraction of a second. There's not even the chance to get anywhere near them for photograph, let alone you know. People said, people said, oh, you, should, you could have improved your photographs by setting up with a tripod. It's like, ha, 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 ha. Do, do you realize that all of those photographs were taken while I was literally running or, you know, literally <laughs> sort of holding the, holding the camera out of the, the window? So, so magpies nesting five meters from my house, I thought, oh, I've got an excellent opportunity into, like, you know, close-up social behavior, going to see them, you know, all the sort of aloe preening and feeding of the babies and bringing in food and maybe constructing and tidying the nest and the fledging events. No, no, nothing. The occasional fleeting glimpse of a bird as it flies in at speed, dives into the foliage and is then gone for an unpredictable amount of time. I tried timing it. There's no predictability to how long they're actually at the nest. And um, uh, only, only once the, the two juveniles were um, fledged and hanging around and begging for food from their um, parents, um, only then was I able to get like good photographs of them sort of not completely submerged in, in foliage, but um, didn't get to see any fantastic or bizarre behaviours of the sort that, that I really hoped that I might. This is the kinds of things that you want to see in Corvids, because obviously they do all these amazing and complex behavioural things. I would say that bird watching is, I'm always guilty of the fact that, you know, I cover birds a lot on Tetrapodsology, but that's, that's um, a consequence of the fact that they are the most visible most watchable of uh tetrapods certainly i was going to say of living things but i'm not sure because there's insects and domestic animals everywhere but um yes yeah, well there's there's people everywhere isn't there yeah yeah but apart from people which are fascinating creatures by themselves and apart from domestic things um yeah it's like birds are everywhere everywhere you go even in the totally urban environment there are birds doing interesting things and something that i you know would argue for strongly and i think most people interested in animals would, would agree with this even the most familiar mundane um animals are really you know there's there's lots of really cool interesting stuff going on if you just take the time to watch them even the most mundane boring familiar things street pigeons brown rats gulls sparrows they're all doing fascinating things and they're all pretty neat animals as well yeah except for your magpies which did nothing interesting well, did you actually look at the photographs? Because there's me saying, when I say they're not doing interesting things, I mean I didn't see them, like, gang up on smaller birds and murder them, or I didn't see them 
catching fish from a pond. I didn't see them bringing in chunks of metal. I didn't see them mobbing old ladies. I, I did see them, you know, undergoing various interesting postural behaviors, you know, begging postures and submissive postures. And this thing I mentioned on the in the Tetrapodology article where I noticed they were blinking a lot. And in my photographs, it's kind of annoying that, so you, you know this, um, most people interested in birds and other reptiles will know this, but in addition to the upper and lower eyelids, the same as we have, birds and many other animals have a, an additional membrane called the nictitating membrane, which doesn't go up and down. It sort of goes from sort of more like back to front across the, the eyeball. It's, it's typically opaque, sort of whitish or grayish. And these photographs of the magpies, they've, they've often got the nictitating membrane across the eye as if I'd photographed them in mid blink. And I thought that's really annoying. That's just like bad luck. But um, reading about magpies, it seems that this blinking of the nictitating membrane is an appeasement gesture. Now you, you've got a domestic cat, you know how cats do like a deliberate slow blink to show yeah. that they're, that they're your, your friend and that it's an appeasement gesture. It seems that there's a similar thing going on here in uh, magpies. I didn't know that. I don't know how widespread it is in corvids or in birds in general, but um, interesting thing to find out about, and 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 the thing that explains this, uh, yeah, this thing in the in the in the photographs. Hmm. I had blinking. a yeah, I had a um a minor bird, an Indian minor bird, and uh, I think it used to do that. I never looked it up, but yeah, come to think of it, it often had its uh, yeah, its membrane across. Was it a good friend of yours? It wasn't. It was, a, yeah. It used yeah. to, used to all over me. Well, well, well. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that mean it was the opposite of a friend? In my hair, down my face. Oh, lovely. Um, yeah. no, it, some, loves, it loves sitting on my head. Yeah. Right. I suppose. Well, there's. I, I know some birds where they defecate does mean something behaviorally. For, you know that some um, there are some thrushes that use their their droppings as weapons against predatory birds because they somehow know well i shouldn't say that but it their, their droppings have like a, an anti-waterproofing function due to whatever whatever waste products are in them and i suppose they they obviously they um they just soil feathers they just mess them up you know stick them together and stuff um so they deliberately i think it's field fairs one of the eurasian um uh, thrushes they they deliberately like bomb like corvids and hawks and stuff with so I don't, don't know if that's what your mind bird was doing or is it that it didn't care it didn't matter it's like so you're you saying know, it was bombing me yeah it was like trying to soil your, your plumage so you wouldn't attack it but, but yeah no, it's, no well, I think it was a friendly bird it was, it's probably it that nice. it didn't care it's probably that in that particular yeah. in those particular birds where they uh uh poop is is kind of not not really meaningful it was completely so, indiscriminate. It really was, mm, mm, and because they're, they're quite small, they're 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 pooping every you know few minutes. They're not. <laughs> I didn't choose special special places to do it. Well, the the that, that's an interesting subject in itself. The speed with which the digestive system operates in some birds. So, uh, geese in particular are famous for like having this incredibly rapid. Uh, gut residence time where food passes through them in like less than half an hour like 20 minutes so literally eat eat grass and uh yeah it's coming out the back constantly and uh and they're so their their nutrient uptake of the grass is obviously like good enough but it's not great there yeah. is 
there's an article on Touchboard Zoology about about this this fact, and um, um, people have learned that if you um, put reindeer to pasture on fields that have been grazed by geese, the reindeer eat the geese poo because it's got like I don't want to say as much nutritional value, but it's got a significant enough nutritional value for it to be worth their while feeding it as much as the natural grass itself. So that tells you something. That's interesting because you'd expect um, geese uh, sort of grazing grazing animals to have a longer digestion time than non-grazing animals wouldn't you i mean because you have to ha- you have to spend more time getting nutrients out of something that's you know, low nutritional value yep like yep, grass yep. yeah that's something i'd love to know more about i've never really read up about that uh, it's probably complicated thing. chemistry isn't it i bet you get a certain amount out of it in the first couple of minutes and then afterwards it's sort of diminishing returns right well that's right because um certainly in mammals and rep well in mammals that that uh, eat a lot of uh, high fiber low nutrition vegetation like like grass they or any any like high fiber leaves they want to keep that uh fermenting in the gut for a long time like hours to days so they tend to be hind gut fermenters where stuff sits just sits in the gut slowly breaking down over a long period of time so um i did look into this and now i can't remember what the answer is whether guts are hind gut fermenters fore gut fermenters um what goes on in the crop i'm, I'm yeah gonna gonna look tremendously ir- ignorant to should definitely check this out the digestive system of birds fascinating subject and i wonder whether the something like rapid gut residence time, whether that's got anything to do with the fact that geese are flighted, so they don't want to retain heavy, high-fiber plant material in the body for the sort of period of time that, say, herbivorous mammals can. Do they, is it that they actually need to have a system that, that is constantly pushing well, the body as quickly as possible? I mean, that certainly seems probable because like, there's not that many grazing birds to start with, is there? Um, it's a, yeah. I mean, compared to, to, compared to land animals, so mammals particular is underrepresented and certainly you look at mammals and they've they've got enormous enormous guts to do this haven't they mm, yeah so it just it does seem that it's got to do with it's a very plausible hypothesis yeah, yeah. so flightlessness has evolved in geese and swans on a, on a few occasions but um where we where we know anything about what those birds were eating they weren't eating grass there's the the flightless um new zealand uh, goose uh, Nemeornis, which I believe coprolites demonstrate that it was eating ferns. And I think that a fern diet has been inferred for the Moanalos, the recently extinct flightless ducks of Hawaii, which uh, they've, been, they've been put in various positions in the uh, waterfowl family tree, but current thinking is that they most likely... G- genetics indicates that they are... Um, dabbling ducks giant flightless goose like dabbling ducks and i don't know maybe i'm wrong there i thought there was some indication that they're eating ferns as well but that might be inaccurate maybe we don't know what they're eating um they're very very cool animals hawaii had a bunch of really interesting flightless waterfowl um yeah have you, have you ever seen these things the moanalos sometimes called turkey so. geese oh yeah there's there's Kelly Kalinaken is is one of the best known ones with this uh um geese have got like tooth like ker- keratin structures along the margins of the the bill which even when the bill is closed they're obvious as like they look like the serrated teeth on 
those scissors you used to cut material with. And they yeah. form this like, um, thing called the grinning patch that you can see from the side of the, side of the jaws. In these, but, but they're only keratin. It's not obvious they're present from the skulls. In these Hawaiian turtle-jawed geese, the tooth-like projections are actually bony and, uh, and obviously would have been substantially enlarged by the keratin beak tissue growing over them. So they would have had a more kind of like serrated um, look to the, um, to the bill. And, and interesting that, that, that they are the only birds that have this, that have these tooth-like projections formed by bone, other than the pseudodonts, the pelagornithids, the osteodontopterygiforms, whatever the hell you want to call it, those <laughs> How many names are there for those things? The pseudo-tooth birds, bony tooth birds, because one of the hypotheses about what they are is that, is that they are uh, close relatives or members of the waterfowl clade. And uh, this has been mentioned at times. That, um, the, the, the idea has been mentioned that, that maybe this is a feature that sort of suggests, sort of supports that view, the fact they've got these bony projections, the same as these turtle-jawed geese. I don't know. It's, um, hmm. Yes, they're, they're, they're difficult to place, aren't they? Um, they, I they thought there were several hypotheses on what they are. There are a few, and this is one of those really interesting cases with fossil animals where um, most people that are familiar with them have got this general idea as to what they are. When you think of them, you think that they are um, pelicaniform type birds, that they are relatives of gannets and tropic birds and, and um, pelicans and, and such. And then it's actually, when you actually look at the detailed anatomy of these animals and what we actually know about it, it's like, why did we ever actually really think that? And the reason is, I'll tell you why, is because the artwork makes them look that way. Because people have generally <laughs> made them look like um, giant gannet type birds. Okay, there are, there are reconstructions of them that make them look like tube nose birds, like albatrosses as well. And that's also another idea that they're related to tube noses. Or that they're somehow intermediate between tube noses and pelicans and kin. But it's like, in actual fact, what good evidence is there for either of those placements? And there isn't really much. There isn't really anything. The detailed anatomy, what we know about the detailed anatomy indicates that, in fact, in, in many respects, they are most similar to waterfowl and, to a lesser extent, game birds as well. And game birds and waterfowl are close relatives within this one particular branch of the bird family tree. Mm. Of course, when you're going to produce an artwork of something like this, which I have, mm. the information on them is tremendously difficult to find, or it was in a few a years ago. Yeah. And um, birds are tricky because uh, once they've specialised on a lifestyle, I mean, giant pelagic saurus, dynamic saurus, which they probably were, then you end up with, um, it sort of swamps their underlying phy phylogeny to a certain extent, doesn't it? They, yeah. uh, birds can be very convergent based on lifestyle, which is, yeah, yeah that's, I don't know whether that's annoying or just interesting. I do yeah. find it interesting, the re-evolution of teeth, mm. whether it's happened teeth. once or twice. Yeah, pseudo well, teeth. We, yeah, we know that the, tr the um, re-evolution of true teeth, there are cases elsewhere in Tetrapoda where this, so, you shouldn't say definitely, but where we're very confident that it must have happened. It's the only explanation. Um, and it's a contradiction of this idea of Dolo's law. Louis Dolo, this uh. 19th century, yeah, uh, paleobiologists came up with this idea that if an organism loses a structure then nowhere later in its evolutionary lineage can the structure ever evolve but within there are there are cases in phylogeny 
where everything we understand about how these organisms are related indicates that a structure that was lost simply must have reappeared. There's no other explanation. The, 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 the classic example related to teeth is in marsupial tree frogs. Now, all frogs, and I hope I get this right, I should have, you know, this is the sort of thing you always need to check because I'm very good at getting these things the wrong way around. I think it's that anurans, frogs and toads, they lack a mandibular dentition, they lack a lower jaw dentition, but many of them, not all of them, but many of them have got an upper jaw dentition and mandibular dentitions are absent apart from one tree frog, uh, sorry, one marsupial tree frog taxon. And this is the, like, I think it's the only anurin that's got mandibular dentition. And uh, the only explanation, it, it's clearly this particular marsupial tree frog is clearly not the sister taxon to all other anurins. It's not like, in quotes, the most primitive anurin that we know of. It's clearly deeply nested within the anurin radiation. So the only conclusion is that it has re-evolved teeth. Um, yeah, and and there's other yeah. other other examples. Well, Dollo's law was all. I mean, it it was silly calling it a law uh, yeah, to yeah, start yeah. with. It could have been a hypothesis, um, yeah. but I think what we know of genetics now suggests that you know you can hide things by control yeah. genes and so on. It just doesn't make any sense. Of course, you can re-evolve something you've lost, especially if you've still got the genetics for it. It's it seems more likely than convergent evolution or anything. It just doesn't seem unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, um, we know this from experimental evidence, don't we? That you can, well, you can yeah, bring back we know structures. That, exactly, yeah. The, the the genes allowing the expression of certain characters can be just kind of dormant or turned off uh, in in an organism's genome, and um, yeah, the uh, it, it can be expressed again at some of the stage, which is obviously what people are hoping to do with this crazy idea about growing chickens that have got long tails and tooth jaws and stuff. And people have. In, in, in laboratories, quite well known, they have um, managed to get chicken jaw tissue to, uh, to germinate teeth and, and all that kind of stuff. So, and of course, of course the, the Dolo's Law thing is, is often mentioned in connection with, with bird origins because it was famously claimed. Gerhard Heilmann wrote this, this famous book in the 1920s on the origin of birds. And he, I have this book, it's um, incredibly well illustrated, it's really impressive. Um, he basically says all throughout that, you know, theropods are clearly very close to birds, but at the end he says, well, theropods lack collarbones, they lack clavicles, so therefore they can't be ancestral to birds because birds have got the wishbone, which is presumably formed from clavicles, although that itself is controversial. Um, and because theropods lack clavicles, he says they can't, they can't give them rise to birds, and Dolo's law is often cited in connection with this. Um, and yes. They, so, it's, so not only, it's inaccurate because we know that in fact theropods did have clavicles, and clavicles are like widespread in in dinosaurs. But, um, but yeah, yeah. The, the, even if even if they didn't, this wouldn't be a knockdown case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, what Bakker says in the the, the dinosaur heresies. It took me a while to, as a as a kid reading that book, to actually figure out what he was talking about. I remember it not being entirely clear. But um, Bakker seems to have a long section, as far as I remember, in the dinosaur heresies, which is saying that. Even if the clavicles were absent, look, they could have they could have re-evolved because they could have been dormant in the genome. Yeah, yeah, I think he does, and I think I found that a confusing um, section as well because I didn't understand what the problem was. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, uh, getting back to bird behaviour, though, which was meant to be the topic. <laughs> yeah, not bird evolution. Although I think that this is related. Uh, hot topic of this week. Um, 
Mark Witten wrote a blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes, about uh, some general problems in in paleontological art, sort of related to all yesterday's, but some different points, which was which is very interesting. I think people should go and read it. So the interesting thing in this, I was using it as a launching off point, is that he reiterates, which I think we've mentioned before, but the big problem of roaring dinosaurs. You know, this, yeah. it's stupid for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, predators roaring at their prey before they eat them, which is obviously yeah. just incredibly stupid. But also, he points out, which I think we've pointed out on the podcast Even though there before, are animals that do it, but uh, but uh, I see they're exceptional cases. There, there's, a, there's a few cases. There's um, psychological warfare. Is in, seals. Huh? Seals, was that? That's one I think I... Seals roar at their prey? What? <laughs> so they had video of them roaring at penguins but isn't that just because they're angry with them not because they're going to pursue them and eat them I think I saw something about them pursuing and eating them but anyway if continue it's, on if with it's, your examples yeah if it's sea lions they normally are deliberately I don't know their, their interaction with local penguins is often part play and part harassment as much it may end in a it may end in a rape, it may end in a predatory interaction, it may end in the death of the penguin, but it's kind of a part of play behaviour for them. It's not, it's not, there's a penguin, I'm going to eat it. Um, yeah, psychological warfare is documented in leopards hunting in the darkness, which it's thought deliberately from cover, you know, from the concealment of the darkened vegetation, they deliberately like scare prey into running away because a lot of predators want things to be running from them so that they can run up behind and grab the rump rather than have to face the often uh weaponed uh yeah. front front end but but yeah by and large it's a ridiculous idea this stupid trope in movies that tyrannosaur bursts from clearing stops looks at prey roars and then and then runs spit hits the camera spears the camera and the whole thing about not opening the mouth we should give due credit to dinosaur revolution or what there's two names for that tv series i can't remember what the other one is Dinosaur Revolution and the one where the dinosaurs were done by is it David Krentz? Mm. Do you know this? Really, the one that had you looked, know, looked, I haven't seen it, but oh, uh, well, it has. I, I do stuff. hear good things about it, but I just stopped watching documentaries about five years ago, and I haven't watched one since. I caught this by fluke because it was uh, shown on one of the satellite channels uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Sorry. And some of the, the some of the dinosaurs looked great, really, really good. Some of the behaviour was great. Some of the behaviour was very silly, and there were some deliberate homages to like um, um, like Looney Tunes cartoons. There was there was um, there's one that's like Tweety Pie and Sylvester, but they're like different. The Tweety Pie is a pterosaur, and Sylvester's a uh, an allosaur or something. And there's also there's a few other things like that that are kind of silly. There's an episode where Gigantoraptor, the Oviraptorosaur, which looks uncannily like too far too similar to a tragopan and a, a modern day pheasant, um, is doing a silly mating dance. And I'm sure dinosaurs, some dinosaurs did do silly mating dances, but this is just too silly. It goes on for too long. And it's all about it's got some comedy ending where it breaks through a burrow and some little zalamdalestes, some little mammals, like run up its leg and squeak angrily at it, like you broke my burrow. You. Nasty dinosaur. But anyway. <laughs> okay. So, so, but if they're we, obviously silly, I don't know. Mate, uh, yeah, as I say, I haven't seen it. Give credit um, where it's you. I wanted to say that there's there's bits where they have tyrannosaurs vocalizing and they made a point of not having the open mouth, full on sp spittle roar thing. Mm. They actually, they make. 
sort of loud, low, guttural noises that didn't involve opening the throat, opening the mouth. And I reckon those were inspired by the behaviour of crocodilians and also that of like big ground birds, cassowaries, emus. Which it does make, sound quite cool. Yeah. Um, I think I think I should watch it because you know, there's a, we at some stage we might it, we might be able to get um, David Krentz on to talk about it. We totally should. Place. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, to yeah. see what what bits were. His ideas, what bits weren't, what bits were sort of chucked in. But uh, I've, I, in, I think on Facebook, I was having a conversation with him, and he said that a lot of the stuff did it got watered down over time, as always. You know, things got yeah. changed, and yeah, as, um, as always happens. But documentaries, yeah, television yeah, folk. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's just all... it's crazy because there are some absolutely top top notch documentaries. I think uh, Inside Nature's Giants was, yep. Was great, yeah. It's brilliant. Start to finish, really. I think it yeah. was really about as good as you'd expect a science documentary uh, on television. But some yep. of them, Jesus, oh. mm, mm. mermaids. Anyway, bird behavior, <laughs> threat. Po- uh, what I wanted to say was threat postures in um, in paintings of theropods. Uh, generally, they're standing tall-ish, neck extended, and their mouth wide open. Yeah. Arm spread as well. And arm arm spread, yeah. But as we've discussed before, and Mark makes this point uh, more precisely, this is just not really what we understand about about threat postures in birds, at least. No. And it doesn't seem to match crocodilians either. That's right. So so having... Obviously, we covered this, I think it was two episodes ago, and then it coming up again in Mark's discussion, and it coming up again just through my observations of living birds, I'm really inspired to actually write about it uh, at length, give some approximate, give some rough kind of guidelines to what seems to be going on. Um, yeah, because we talked about posture last time, and I, I kind of outlined a few of the characteristic postures that are quite easy to see in in familiar birds. And threat postures are, yeah, they seem to be fairly consistent. They 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 involve the bird stooping with a off the, keeping its body quite low to the ground, typically, and having some kind of like menacing air about it, often with its neck and head. Um, held in in some sort of you know jabbing kind of action uh, posture. So sort of contracted towards the, the photos I've seen. Um, yeah, and looking at it, that's often it sort of starts sort of contracted towards the body with the with the um, the the bill. Or in the case, if it was, if it's this is what um, large theropods like uh, Tyrannosaurus did. Um, the the mouth slightly upwards. Anything. Yeah, so there's there's several different the the problem with these one of the problems with 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 understanding this body language is there's always slightly conflicting. Uh, th- th- there's some amb- ambiguous signals because but animals are sometimes themselves behaviorally ambiguous. They're not sure what what they're going to do, and when they are uncertain or uneasy, their body language is represents a kind of conflict conflict of that looks partially aggressive, but it also could be partially conciliatory. Um, and there's also there's different signals, certainly in the birds where this is well documented, where people have like identified the clearest signals they can for different for different um, behaviours, for different intentions. There seems to be different signals according to the proximity and magnitude of the threats. So the classic example, I think this is I can't remember if I mentioned geese last time, but geese are the classic ones thanks to the the work of Nika Tibergen. And it seems that when they are responding to dangers at distance their body 
maybe uh, sub-horizontal or slightly elevated and their neck is held kind of upwards with the bill pointing upwards. But when it's a close-by thing, you know, a fox is approaching the nest or whatever, then it's totally different. Then the body is close to the ground. The um, the, the full frontal attack or the all-out defensive forward attack or various different terms for it that involves the neck the, the body being low the neck being horizontal the the head being skywards um and then there's various similar things that are combinations of those involving sometimes the neck in an arch posture sometimes the sometimes the bill being down sometimes the bill being up um it's they uh, having having you know experienced aggression from geese and other waterfowl you it does tend to be fairly unambiguous what they mean you know you can tell whether one is approaching you with friendly intent or aggressive intent through other signals that you know we can pick up on like the, the noises they make or how fast they're moving or the look in their eyes uh, birds t- 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 i'm totally i'm totally serious it's like the 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 size of a bird's pupil seems to be a pretty good guide to um to how excited or um potentially aggressive it is a lot a lot of birds when they're really riled up aggressively or sexually their pupils contract to tiniest little little pinholes in some birds it's called pinhole pupil um response um and their eyes are like really really wide at the same time um relaxed you know the pupil is just at normal size but sometimes the moment before the attack the pupil dilates uh markedly dilation dilation of bird pupils yeah, well, I, I think I've said all I had to say about that. And I've right. forgotten what I was doing. I've been writing about parareptiles in the meantime, so I've, I've moved on, man. Are we allowed to call them parareptiles anymore? There's a clade of reptiles called the parareptiles. It seems that early in its history, reptilia diverged into eureptilia, which includes the diapsids and their close relatives, and parareptiles, parareptilia, which includes an assemblage of carboniferous homotriassic forms. Oh, Hmm. Um, with the best known of which are the pariasaurs, because oh, best yeah. known because they're yeah quite big and you often see them in European museums certainly. Um, but but and and of course the the big controversy is whether turtles are parareptiles or whether they're deeply nested within eureptiles, whether they're diapsids. But um, yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. What do you think? What do I think about the position of turtles? Hmm. That 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 problem. Um, no, I I think that 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 they are we've been duped by morphology and that they are deeply nested within diapsids um, and that, that they probably are close to archosaurs. And of course the, the main, the strongest hypotheses at the moment are whether they are close to archosaurs or closer to lepidosaurs, snakes and lizards and close relatives. And, uh, and I'm not sure. And, and, and every now and again, there's like a new study which says, Oh no, we've done, we've, we've looked at, you know, 17 new genes and they all support a strong affinity with archosaurs and then someone says no we've looked at like forget that we've looked at the whole of the nuclear genome and it's clearly putting it closer to to lepidosaurs and i think the stronger stuff at the moment looks like they are close to or maybe even within archosaurs which is yeah yeah that's been mooted quite a few times that they're actually within archosaurs specifically close relatives of crocodile group archosaurs and people have (laughs) toyed informally with the idea that turtles might be Miniature Aetosaurs. Or <laughs> <laughs> That's quite stuff. cool. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think that the, 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 the features supposed to link them to parareptiles do now appear to be convergent. It's a bit of a shame in a way. I mean, it'd be nice to have such deep, deeply uh, yeah. 
divergent. Divergent? What, what's the word I'm looking for? Deeply um, different. Um, yeah, the fact that they would be like well outside the clade that includes all other extant reptiles. We would have like a extant members of a, the sister tax onto all other reptiles, I guess. Yeah, that, um, that would be cool. But yeah. It doesn't seem so. It seems that para-reptiles didn't make it beyond the Triassic. I don't think, I don't think there's any that got beyond the Triassic. Dinosaurs but, did them in. <laughs> they, um, they, they, quite a few lineages seem to have been in certain groups seem to have been okay across the Perma-Triassic boundary um, there are some groups of these animals this, the, the, the end Permian event is obviously supposed to have been devastating and you know, people talk about 95% of all living things dying or whatever, whatever but within some of the para-reptile clades there's in particular one of the best known groups the Procolophenoids like uh, like four out of six lineages made it across the permatriasic boundary so mm. whatever was killing things wasn't wasn't um eliminating these reptiles maybe because they were really hard you know they could actually they did things maybe they were like burrow dwellers or something so maybe they were able to hard men yeah they were the the yeah or or maybe the extinction event wasn't as severe as uh, some people uh say or and you don't want to hear this it's statistical noise why would it be statistical noise? Well, it just could be because if you take any random clade, yeah, and you you look at all the clades, some clades are going to come through better just by chance. Sure. And occasionally you'll find a clade where they came through really well, but it wasn't to do with their tr- intrinsic properties. It was just chance. Just fluke. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe. Um, which is not a very satisfying scenario. Satisfying answer, but. Um, yeah. Well, it is to some statisticians, I suppose. No. Randomness explains everything. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that was a charming gesture. We're glad. <laughs> lucky this isn't a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, cats. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was something else we were going to talk about, but I forgot what it was. It was something topical, which we thought we should throw in here. Uh. Superman? The new book. What? The new book. Oh. Well, please, don't let me stop you. Go ahead. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we should wait until (laughs) we actually (laughs) decided what the fuck it is first. Um, Uh, Yes. Okay. I want to put some pictures out. Yeah, it's entirely down to you because it is contingent on the release of of artwork, isn't it? Mm, Yeah. And that's in your hands. Okay, and we should, mention, we should mention, we should mention, hey, stop talking, all right? Mm. Okay, all right. This book is being written and illustrated in conjunction with our good friend, Chevdet Memo Kozman, who we, uh, through sheer ineptitude, neglected to mention during our previous mention of all yesterdays. And, our, and, and in our defense, John and I have both said on, on I, think, I think it was on Facebook or something, that, or, or, or email, I can't remember, but one of those it was strange, yeah, one of those electronic ways of, of speaking, that when we were talking to Blake about all yesterdays, we were kind of, I wouldn't say caught off guard, but we basically weren't, we weren't prepared, we weren't doing a very good job of selling the book. And, uh, and forgetting to mention Memo in, in connection with this was just, idiocy it wasn't it wasn't deliberate or anyway so <laughs> given so, um, that you did half the half the artwork <laughs> and um most of the writing after the introduction then yeah. <laughs> uh, whoops yeah. <laughs> yeah so sorry to him and we should we should definitely have him as a guest at some point on the 
Well, I think what we should do is actually do a special podcast when we're um, going to discuss the new top secret book. Yeah. Um, we'll have him on to discuss what, maybe when we're a bit further progressed and have decided what the structure of the book is and that sort of thing, we'll have him on and we'll talk about it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. but everybody who knows all yesterdays will be familiar with Memo's artwork, C.M. Kozman, yes. and he's working with us on, on a new book. Yes, which is top secret or possibly won't be by the time this podcast goes out because I'm itching to get some of my artwork out. Movies, seen any good movies? I'm going to see Superman, Man of Steel tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw something recently at the cinema, what was it? <laughs> I just <laughs> just did Superman in general. I I haven't actually seen any of the newer films, but there's a reason for that. I find Superman quite boring. I just don't see how you get a dramatic tension out of someone that's invincible. Well, he's not completely invincible, is he? Yeah, he's got yeah, a weakness he kind of to is. trip tonight. And... I do find superheroes a bit boring in this respect in general, in that you sort of know that they're super powered and pretty invulnerable. Well, I think this, this new movie looks pretty good in the. Well, on the one hand, it, it does look good, on the other hand, it doesn't. It, it, it's, got, it's got. One of the best Superman movies, the original one, to Christopher Reeve, is the second one, which is where the three criminals from Krypton, led by General Zog, come back to they, they actually i think they're like they're trapped inside of like a rotating glass pane of glass kind of prison thing and um they they escape on the moon earth's moon i should say which is called kylie it has a real name apparently i just sort of throw that fact in there and uh, <laughs> and and then they come to earth and they try to exert dominion over humanity and of course superman has to fight them well that's the story that they're going within this new movie so basically it's kind of like could be regarded as a remake of superman 2 Reboot, they Superman call it now. The reboot. But they're doing that annoying thing they do with movies nowadays. They just do it with Amazing Spider-Man, where because the best part of the story, the story that everybody knows and loves and cherishes, is the origin story, they're doing the origin. Are they, I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie yet, but it looks like they're doing the origin story again. That Yet again, we get to see baby Cal-El, I believe Superman's name is. We get to see baby Cal-El being put in a little capsule and, and sent away from a, a decaying planet Krypton by his loving parents. But I've also heard that there's something different about the film this time, that Krypton, Superman is not like the only... Superman and the three baddie guys, they're not the only surviving Kryptonians, people from Krypton, that there's... There's can't the, the, call them kryptonites, can we? Exactly, kryptonite. Yeah, yeah. So, but we'll see because uh, the previous movie, the one popularly known among fans as Superman lifts increasingly heavy objects, is uh, I can't. <laughs> how is it that that movie cost? I remember at the time them saying that movie was like the most expensive film ever. I'm I sure know, I, I haven't that. seen it. Oh well, it involves Superman lifting increasingly heavy objects. <laughs> he starts with a plane. Which crashes is going to crash in a baseball stadium because that's what planes do, and then he lifts up, uh, well, increasingly heavy objects until he gets to like lifting up a sort of new suit. No, I'm not joking. He lifts up a new continent that Lex Luthor <laughs> is growing off the eastern seaboard of the United States and puts into puts it into space, despite <laughs> the fact that it's partially formed from kryptonite. So it's quite difficult for Superman to do this. But uh, he still does it. <laughs> there's a, and there's a great line in it. Kevin Spacey plays Lex Luthor. And um, one of them, 
Lex Luthor's always got some secretly intelligent but bimbo-esque female sidekick. And there's a bit where he, he, he shows her, he's got this map of America, how he's growing this new continent because he's using crystals to grow this new continent off in, in the Atlantic. And uh, she says, won't, won't thousands of people die? And he says, millions! <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's sort of, it's quite a, it's, that's quite a, I think that's my favourite bit from the movie, actually. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I think about Superman. Oh. I'm not entirely clear what you do think about Superman, but uh, I don't think it's entirely uh, counter to my view, which is it's stupid. Well, hey, it's a it's a man in a blue costume and red pants and a cape. Yeah, with these pants on the outside. For our American listeners, he's underpants on the outside. Yeah. What, what what is that? What uh, what is that? See, I don't really get superheroes at all. Um. I don't generally find them particularly entertaining. I find the drama awkward and I find them overall a bit silly. But what is with the underpants on the outside? Well, we have to hark back to the distant time of the 1930s when a lot of these superheroes were invented. Superman is in the- <laughs> As was the style at the time. That was the style at the time. <laughs> aren't there? There are Superman stories so I, I, i'm talking about the comics obviously where superman like fights the nazis and wasn't there one there's there's a famous superman story and i should say that i know nothing about superman whatsoever so yeah it's a bit of a travesty to people that do but there's one where he like fights the klu klux klan or or, or challenges the klu klux klan and i kind of remember reading that this actually real world had some honest impact in terms of what people actually knew about the klu klux klan and what they actually did about them which I don't know. That's something that might be this worth doesn't, This into, doesn't. Like. Okay, that might be yeah. very worthy, but it does not explain the underpants. Uh, yeah, and uh, well, maybe. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, you would presume that the Klu Klux Klan hate gay people as much as <laughs> non-white people. So maybe it's a uh, that was Superman's special. I'm not saying I don't think Superman's gay. I'm pretty sure he's not. But maybe that's maybe they that's the like thing he's going for. Yeah, they would. He knew they would be perturbed by campness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not just Superman, is it? It's a lot of them. Yeah. Did they yeah. all get it from Superman? Uh, well, he must be one of the first. Is is he before uh, 1933 or something? So I'm deliberately not going to Google any of this stuff. But I think he's one of the first superheroes and. I really don't know. That's a really interesting question. Why are superheroes dressed the way they are? Batman, pretty obvious. But <laughs> Superman and, and, and then all the others that... See, went... for me, Batman reached his peak in the 70s. Adam West. <laughs> <laughs> I told you my Since squirrel... then, it's all been this horrible downhill trundle into Batman's a serious character. And I'm sorry, superheroes aren't serious characters. I am I'm going to enrage best. our nerd audience, aren't I? They're going to be so angry with me. They are. Well, I'm, a, I'm a champion of Batman. Send your hate mail to uh, Tetrapodcats. Or hashtag, specifically to hashtag, John Conway. Hashtag Tetrapodcats. Yeah. But note that Darren doesn't agree with any of this. Well, he can't nah, secretly Yeah, I, I don't. I'm actually seriously thinking, what is... A lot, a lot of ideas in popular culture... Um, 
that seem to be recurrent, you know, have have recurrent themes about them. There's like a reason for it. Like the reason that we think of the reason that we think of costume superheroes is because prior to superpowered people from space, people had the ideas of like costumed vigilantes, you know, going back before that. And I'm just like things like Robin Hood and did I Robin th- I think, Hood wear his underpants on the outside? Well, well, I don't think he did, but I think when you see depictions of Robin Hood, is okay. He's meant to be like a professional woodsman and and i know what they dress like because one of my friends is a professional woodsman but um why would but is is there like sort of the idea of like a special kind of costume and then you think i'm thinking of like victorian characters oh, i think right i don't think robin hood was from victorian times i think he was from a bit before that but in victorian times there were various characters who similarly were like a cross between like a vigilante a baddie and a superhero i was never really sure clear what they were spring jack I'm sure you've heard of Spring Hill Jack, yeah? He yeah. was like this, yeah, this kind of character who supposedly was witnessed by various people in Victorian London and was associated with various, I don't know about murders, but sort of nefarious goings on. And uh, it's the sort of thing that someone would make now into a superhero movie or a supervillain character or something. And I'm pretty sure he's supposed to have worn a special costume. So I'm, is this... I'm getting a visual thread here, actually. I just um, Googled... Uh... Robin Hood underwear. Uh, right. As you do. But what I'm thinking it might be, with the superheroes that have capes and everything, there's, it's sort of harkening back to this, um, what is it, 17th century, 18th century style of tights and bloomers, you know? Ah. It's just become more shrunken so that the bloomers have become tight and small. <laughs> also, you think of um, um, like sci-fi characters from the earlier decades of the 20th century, um, space people, that they, they were sort of shown in tight-fitting uh, kind of garments like that. Flash Gordon is from the 1930s as well, isn't he? And, and doesn't he have that kind of thing going on? Can't say I really paid that much attention, but... Um, Flash Gordon? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I Flash know the, uh, the 80s film. Well, that's, that's like obviously not much to do with the original. Flash Gordon was a, was a, a black and white TV series, like a, I don't know, Saturday morning kind of. Oh, yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe they were short movies that people went to see in the cinema. I don't really know. But, um, but I think, and, and that was based on the comics uh, again. And I, again, I think you've got this kind of idea that sci-fi space people this is one of those things where the if people are going to talk about it, they really should kind of know what they're talking about beforehand, shouldn't they? <laughs> Stupid people. <laughs> Stupid us. We're idiots for not knowing this stuff. We didn't. Well, I don't think we're idiots for not knowing it. Maybe we're idiots for going Hope into it in depth without knowing anything about it. But uh, yes. Um, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> that was a good little uh, segue into pop culture. That was nice. Well. Yeah. So let's wrap it up because I think we've got enough now. We don't need to do a really long one. The last one was an hour and 45 minutes, which I think was probably a little over the top. Yeah, yeah. Well done to anyone who made it through the whole length of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's wrap it up. I didn't have any tweets come come in apart from someone responding to a hilarious thing I said about a giant dinosaur train this morning. In, in uh, t- the, an episode of Dinosaur Train I watched today, uh, Tiny the Pterosaur, Tiny the Pteranodon, Asks the members of the theropod club on the train which characteristics unite theropods, and one of the one of the theropods said, "We don't wear clothes." <laughs> I was like, "Wow, that's like a yeah, that is a synapomorphia of theropoda." When you come to think of it, it's, uh, it's it, yeah, it's not, 
no, um, it's not. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a plesiomorphy, that is. Yes. Uh, how do we wrap it up? Buy our book. All yesterday's. Yeah. All oh, yesterday's. it's on sale on Amazon uh, UK. Fifteen eighty nine, I believe. It's a well, that's, that's incre- incredibly reasonable for a price of that, uh, for a book of that significance. <laughs> there's also a volume called Tedgebot's Orgy Book One, which still continues to sell really, really well, and uh, that's available from Amazon and other digital retailers. Um, I blog at Tetrabods Audio, which is currently hosted at Scientific American. And your uh, what's your what's your uh, Twitter handle? <laughs> I I tweet at at at. Oh, Luke, we've got a malfunction in fire control. I have to cut in the auxiliary. Just just hang on, hang on, Dak. Get rid of fire that talking cable. But you, Dak, Dak. Tetzu. Oh, it gets better every time. Um, yes, I've got a website, johnconway.co. There's no point in going there because you can't buy prints. Look, I'm going to oh, rant about this a little bit on air because, you know... Do it. Why not? Yeah. So I had a great little service called Photomoto, which I just put a little bit of code in my website and it let me sell prints. They were brilliant prints. They'd take care of all the payment, the shipping, everything. It was really nice. And they were acquired by a scumbag company called Live Books about three months ago. At first it looked like everything was going to be okay, but since then it's become clear that they gutted all the staff from Photomoto and stopped updating or maintaining the service. And so it's only recently that I've discovered that in fact what they've been doing is taking orders and not fulfilling them. So you could go on my site, buy my print, and they just wouldn't wouldn't ship it. And that's been going on for about a month. Um, which is obviously really bad, really, really bad. Um, if anyone listening to this has ordered a print in the last month and hasn't heard about it, then they should contact me and I'll sort it out. But um, so yeah, that's really bad. Live books, scumbags, and they're not—they're not paying any attention to anyone's uh, emails or anything. So you can email the support, email the CEO. None of it makes any difference. No response. Terrible, terrible people. Never do business with them. They've ruined my. Photomoto, which was a great little service. Um, so I'm currently looking for a new print provider who can integrate with my website. If anyone's got any suggestions, email me, john.a.codway at gmail.com. The A stands for awesome, by the way. <laughs> That's not what your mum told me. <laughs> Stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got any... any, um, any scumbags you want to rant about this no i'm good no no i'm good for for ranting about scumbags yeah okay (laughs) um so yeah buying our book yeah you can go to my website if you really want to there's no point um follow me on twitter mike to terrace i'm thinking about changing my twitter handle because no one can spell mike to terrace and you even say it wrong so um i'm thinking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, sure yeah, I do. Sure, it's I terrible. Do. It's terrible. So I'm thinking I mean, about changing I mean, it. You never have to spell it though. You just put at ny, and then it comes up with like nyc or or nick to terrace, and it's like there you go. That's that Nike, job done. Nick to terrace. No, the, but the problem is that I am saying it on the podcast now, and it's not something you can spell from saying. Well, you underestimate people's intelligence. I'm sure that the vast majority of our our listeners. 
can spell anything that's got Nikto in it. You can't even say it. That's because it's not... I, I, I use the term Nikto something frequently and they never, nobody ever says Nikto something or other. <laughs> Maybe not with that accent. I don't know what that was. Uh, I'll oh. tell you that. Mm. But anyway, there's, there's a much better handle available, which I think I'm going to take. Even though it means that these uh, special cards I had printed will be useless. Huh. But I haven't had any chance to give them to anyone anyway. So. Oh, I give away loads of my business cards all the time. I never meet anyone. Oh, well, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, Needs to get out more. Well, I don't know about that. I don't really like out all that much. <laughs> <laughs> God, are we finished yet? Are we finished? Yeah, yeah. We're done. No, no, no We're hang done. on, hang on, hang on. We forgot oh, to... No, oh. no, no. There's things we forget to say. Right, because I forgot this last episode too. So you can go to tetzoo.com for the show notes, right? Because we're, we're mentioning things. And also you can email us at tetzoothepodcast at gmail.com. I'm also thinking about changing that. I'm thinking that okay. should be tetrapodcasts at gmail.com. Okay, yeah. Um, pe- the people don't... But I haven't registered that like... yet. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay, so don't yeah. email that yet. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and if you register that, uh, I'll know who you are. Oh, yeah, something we should probably get into the habit of doing is corrections for previous uh, episodes. We were doing that for a while, and then we sort of forgot about it. Cause, oh, no, we never get into uh, Yeah, but sorry, but no, I, 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 sometimes, sometimes we say libelous things, like the stuff you were saying a minute ago. So yeah. I was, no, all, that, all that was true. Well, yeah, that was true. It's not yeah, libel if it's true. Uh, true, okay. So last time I said that that Rio movie was by Pixar, and yeah. it's not. Yeah, Mike Keezy, thank you, Mike, corrected us in the comments. It's by another company. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> and when I was talking about the names of Glyptodonts, I mentioned Haploporus, Propaleohaploporus, uh, and Propaleohaploporus, but I forgot. Parapropaleohaploporus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to yeah. add to that. I've been, collecting, I've been collecting names of the numbers of people who I've now referred to um, when, when they refer to the abbreviation SP. They say... And having just been to a conference in Rio where people have been talking extensively about Quetzalcoatlusspur, I can assure you, I can assure you, Mike Keezy, that people do indeed refer to the SP as spur. And so, take that one too, Mike Keezy. Take that one. And if those bureaucrats down at City Hall don't like it, they can stick that in their pipes and smoke it. Uh, donate to the freaking podcast, people. Do you agree, Darren, that they should I think, donate? Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be helpful. Yeah, great big <laughs> donate that, button. Press I wouldn't it. be that aggressive about it. <laughs> Someone would do us any favours. Punch them in the head if they don't know to donate. <laughs> yeah, We're it's, very, it's very, very, very poor. We need the money. It does help when people uh, provide yeah. Yes. Okay. Cover, cover hosting costs and such. Okay, all right, can we finish now? Yeah, I'm nodding. <laughs> Can you not see? <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs>